This is the Future of Agriculture podcast, the show that explores the people, companies, and ideas shaping the future of agribusiness. If you're curious about innovations in ag tech, rural entrepreneurship, ag sustainability, or food security, this is the show for you. Let's get started. Hello again. Thanks so much for downloading this episode of the Future of Agriculture podcast. My name is Tim Hamrich. I'm an ag recruiter. So if you know anybody looking to hire or be hired in ag tech or agribusiness, I'd sure love an email from you. It's tim at aggrad.com. This show is a part of the Farm and Rural Ag Network. So if ag podcasts like this one are your thing, make sure you go check out some other good ones over there at farmruralag.com. Many times in this show, because we're focused on ag innovation, we focus on pure startups, somebody who has an idea, gets enough traction to raise some money, and really takes their shot at making a difference on the agriculture industry. I love that narrative, and and it definitely is one that we've highlighted extensively on the show. Today's episode's a little bit different. What if those ideas, those ambitions grow out of large corporations? You know, large corporations, just by nature of the amount of resources that they have at hand, have some fantastic people with some fantastic ideas. And what happens when those people want to take a moonshot? They really want to do something that may be very risky, but very rewarding should they be successful. Well, on today's episode, you're going to hear an example of this. And what happened was a joint venture was formed between Bayer Crop Sciences and Ginkgo Bioworks. They formed Join Bio, J-O-Y-N. I'm very pleased to have on the show today, Mike Milley, who's the CEO of Join Bio. It's a joint venture that was spun out about a year and a half ago. He came to Bayer through an acquisition of AgriQuest that he led. And he's been at Bayer for about five and a half years before starting this joint venture. And it's really, really interesting how they leverage the resources of the big companies that that they came from, but the culture of startup and innovation and, and having a kind of a close-knit team that's working on a big problem. And if that's not enough to keep you sticking around till the end, we have another great five-minute farmer segment here with Amy Solzma of Solzma Pumpkin Patch and Ruby Red Popcorn that you can purchase online. Make sure you stick around for that. But here is my interview first with Mike Milley, CEO of Join Bio. Mike's going to start off by telling us how this whole joint venture came about. So it, to, to understand, it, it really originated with a, uh, a program inside of Bear called LEAPS, L-E-A-P-S, by Bear. And this was an idea that they, a concept they came up with three years ago or so, um, and it they were challenged or challenging themselves, this big German company was challenging themselves, how do we stay innovative? And they came up with this idea of doing 50-50 joint ventures in key strategic areas, matching up either money and resources from Bayer with IP or assets or know-how that Bayer didn't have, and putting those together in a a 50-50 joint venture. And specifically looking at projects, looking at opportunities that that we called moonshots. So these were not projects that you would ever get approved or do inside of crop science or the pharma or the consumer health businesses. They're too P&L driven. So this actually sat above that at the corporate level. And because they're 50-50 joint ventures, they stay out of all the P&L reporting, but they gave they offered Bear an opportunity to go after some of these uh, strategically critical 
areas in a highly innovative or entrepreneurial way. So we're set up totally independent in, in, each, in the case of each of the joint ventures. So they, the first one they did was called Casibia, and that was with uh, CRISPR Therapeutics doing the CRISPR-Cas and Pharma play. Second one was called Blue Rock with stem cell technology uh, with Versant. And then the third one was getting over to the ag side was Join Bio. And we initially came up with the idea of, of combining genomics with the microbiome and said, okay, let's, let's look at synthetic biology and, and what it's doing and, and what might be the applications to agriculture. And that led us to Ginkgo Bioworks as part of the selection process. And then we built up a great relationship with Ginkgo and hammered out a, a joint venture agreement. And uh, in October of 2017, Bear and Ginkgo jointly as 50-50 partners launched the JV with me halftime as the first employee. <laughs> Very cool. And, and yeah. I, know, I know you you have a PhD, right, in, in uh, ag engineering? I do. Well, it's, yeah, I've a, um, I went to Stanford for my bachelor and then went to uh, UC Davis and, and got a PhD in agricultural and environmental chemistry and then have done a, a series of businesses since then, the, the last one and the most recent one here being the, the joint bio. Great. And, and for those of us, you know, maybe in layman's terms, can you explain kind of why this is a moonshot for, for Bayer? I think for, for a couple of reasons. One is the initial project that we sort of picked as the, as the poster for, the, for, the, for the, the joint venture was addressing nitrogen fixation. So if you go back, people have been looking for decades at ways to use nitrogen, come up with nitrogen fixation with cereals, with corn and, and wheat and such, similar to what soybeans and, and peanuts have evolved with. So it's sort of this holy grail of, you know, can we find a microbe that fixes enough nitrogen and transfers it to the plant that you can dramatically reduce the amount of synthetic fertilizer, right? So that's a that, that's definitely a moonshot and not something that, that uh, you're probably going to get approved in a, normal, in a normal prioritization. The second reason it's a moonshot is the concept of applying synthetic biology and metabolic engineering to agriculture. So historically and, and up till now, almost all of synthetic biology applications have been in what's called a contained environment. They're, they're done in a big fermentation tank the microbes, in this case, the, the workhorse microbes would be E. coli or yeast. They're uh, engineered to opti optimally around producing certain products, and those products are extracted away. The product itself is not the microbe. The product is, in most cases, a metabolite, a specialty chemical, a fragrance, uh, whatever, or a drug, a, a pharma product. And it's called, all of that is, is done in what's called a contained environment. What we, what we set, set out to do is actually say that that engineered microbe is going to be the product. So not only does it have to be engineered so that it produces or, or optimally produces what we want, it also has to be able to go out as the product. It has to go out and as a seed treatment or as an inferro application, it has to be able to go out and perform in the environment. So this is another big stretch. And then the third reason it's a moonshot is that, you know, we have in, in many geographies, regulatory and social acceptance hurdles that we're going to have to overcome. 
so you you put all that together and i think you can imagine you you sit in a uh, an R&D setting inside of Bayer, inside the normal crop science group, there's a lot of reasons and a lot of risk why you wouldn't go put $100 million at this project. But you pull that out and put it into a joint venture in a small entrepreneurial group, team it up with the leader in synthetic biology right now, Ginkgo, in their foundry and the infrastructure they have, and match that up with this driving need right now for innovation and new solutions in agriculture. And, you know, yes, it's a moonshot and, you know, there's, there's plenty of reasons, plenty of risk, but if we can get there and if we can actually, and, and we'll go through this a little later, if we can actually show the power of this and how much, how well it works. It's going to be pretty exciting. And, and if we actually get to products, there's a conduit for those products to go back to Bayer or go to Corteva or any of the big ag companies in terms of a, a commercial uh, commercial outlet. And, and what is the you know the roadmap for getting there? What does that look like, and what kind of stage of development are you in now? It's actually interesting. The what we what we need to do, or the process we'll go through, is first identifying what we call host or chassis microbes. And these would be these would be microbes that can actually be the product, okay, and have have special properties such as they colonize the plant really well, they're extremely safe, they're stable, and most important maybe, they're easily tractable, meaning we, we can engineer they're easily engineered inside of the ginkgo foundry with the metabolic the high throughput metabolic engineering labs. Once you find those, and that's we're we're working on a, a handful of those now. Once you find and validate those, that's the first step. So imagine a chassis, if you will, of a car. And then the next step is we need to identify and insert or engineer in the specific traits that we want to deliver to that plant. So that host or chassis essentially becomes a delivery mechanism and the traits that you put in become the cargo and now you have this microbe that's delivering to the plant versus spraying on a chemical or engineering a trait into a a corn or soybean plant and and why do you need both why can't you just have the 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 one you're looking for why do you need the the chassis or the uh, the delivery mechanism so so the for, I think that's a good question. So the, the reason you need the chassis or the delivery is you need to have whatever's delivering that cargo needs to be able to colonize essentially the entire plant. It has to have a special association with the plant, and it has to also have enough of a relationship, symbiotic relationship with that plant that it can actually move those traits and, and move those traits to the plant. So if you imagine nitrogen fixation for a minute, you know, if we find if we find the right genomics there for for that microbe to fix the nitrogen and transfer it to the plant in an efficient way, if it's only colonizing two percent of the plant, it's not going to be very efficient. If we find a host or a chassis that colonizes a hundred percent of the plant, and imagine trillions of these microbes in a symbiotic relationship with the plant, then your efficacy, your performance, and your impact on that plant goes up dramatically. And, and, you know, one of our theories of, you know, why we're doing this and why we're trying to, to show how powerful this is, is that, you know, we've, we've been working in, in biologics since 2004 when I came in and, and uh, took over AgriQuest. And 
we've always had a limited amount of success. There really aren't any blockbuster, if you will, uh, biological solutions. And, and one of the primary reasons for that is consistency. And the other is just pure efficacy relative to the chemicals. And one of our theories is that there are plenty of microbes out there with really, you know, very effective traits, but the microbe that they're sitting in doesn't have the properties to actually deliver that trait in an efficient and high enough level to have the type of impact that you want it to, whether that's nitrogen fixation, whether that's as a fungicide or an insecticide. So the whole concept here, the whole idea here is to get that workhorse host or that chassis that you can both engineer easily, because a lot of these microbes, you know, there's trillions, but a lot of these microbes are not as easily engineered as say yeast and E. coli are. So you want to, you have to find ones that are reasonably tractable so you can put the traits in, but you also, it's critical, they have the, the properties of colonization and association with the roots and the leaves and the entire plant so that they can actually deliver those traits across the entire plant. And I know your, your, your focus initially here at least is on nitrogen fixation for, for cereals, like you mentioned earlier. How close are we yep. to that being commercially viable? So, it, it, I mean, speaking for ourselves, I think we are, we're at the early stages right now of doing two things. One, we've identified two or three of these, of, of the hosts or chassis that we think are going to work really well. And we're also working on the specific engineering we need to do to optimize the nitrogen fixation. And we are in early stage, I would say very early stage proof of concept testing right now. In the, one of the reasons we one of the reasons we we call it a moonshot, and one of the reasons we got funded like we did, and 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 why this joint venture concept with from bears is so you know I think is going to be so successful is they've set this up to tackle problems that realistically are going to take four five six years. They're not going to happen in eighteen months. And a lot of companies, venture capital backed companies, get funded, and everybody wants them to get to the market as fast as possible. And you take a lot of, you, you, you do whatever you can to keep the money coming in and you do whatever you can to keep the investors happy. In our case, and, and it gets back to sort of the unique structure of the joint venture, we've got two parents who came into this knowing that these were big problems, knowing that to do something this different from what's been done before, it's going to take three, four or five years. And so realistically, you know, we're at least that far out, I would say. And, and I'd say the other part of this is if you think about the mechanics of seed treatment on corn, if you really are going to get on all the corn seed in the U.S., that's going to go through Bayer with the DeKalb franchise and Pioneer. That, that's who has the germplasm. That's who has the seed. And if you want to be on 70, 80, 90 percent of the corn seed in the U.S., you have to go through them because they own it. And so that means you have a process of a couple of years where they have to try it in their field trials with their people and it has to work. And if you go through that, then it eventually will, if it, if it performs, it will actually become, a, it will become part of their primary seed treatment. But you have to earn that. You have to earn it. And so there's a, because of cycles on this stuff, you know, you do it a couple of years, they do it a couple of years realistically before you actually have it on a commercial, a major commercial launch, you know, it, it's going to be four or five years. 
You mentioned earlier that there kind of hasn't been this, you know, earth shattering microbial product that has come out yet. And, and you, you said kind of a lot of that has to do with consistency and, and efficacy versus the chemical alternatives. What keeps you optimistic that there, there will be that, that earth shattering product that comes out? <laughs> I think it's the belief that these microbes do some very special things and they, and they do form very specific, very special relationships with the plant. But if you just take what's out there in nature, if you just use as your starting point what's out there, you're limited to a large degree. You're, you're very limited by what level of performance you're going to get across a wide variety of crops, across different geographies, and even across even season to season. Because you're, in all likelihood, we think, you're operating right at the threshold of where it's active or not so active, right? If we can actually turn the activity level up, if we can actually turn the performance level up by a factor of five or 10 by, by optimizing it, then you move above that noise level and now you're going to have a, a performance level, a consistency that you would never see with a wild type or natural micro. The analogy I use sometimes, Tim, is that imagine the, the chemical world of, of crop protection if nobody could ever derivatize. Hmm. And and you can't right if you think about going back to just that that original molecule that you found that had some activity, then the performance out there in the field would be very different than it is today with the highly derivatized, highly optimized, highly formulated products, whether they're strobilurins or whether they're neonics or whatever. They've all been they've all been derivatized and they've all been optimized. Yet, if you go to the microbial world, everybody sits there and says, no, no, we got to take what we got. (laughs) And to me, it's not surprising that when you do that, it's a great idea and it's natural. And and frankly, it it fits a number of needs, real needs that are out there today, whether it's residue, resistance, these types of things. It's very real. And, and, you know, we lived and breathed that with Serenade and and there's other BTs, there's products out there that have, have done okay. But in truth, if you if you sit there and say, wow, was there ever anything like a strobilurin? Was there ever anything like, you know, you go down the list of, you know, billion dollar revenue uh, crop protection products. And it's, it's hard to find a biological one that even gets to 100 million. That's a challenge. So it's a different scale. And I think we're so when you if you if you really want to impact agriculture on a global level, if you really want to have an impact from innovation, we're going to have to find ways to make these microbes perform in a more efficacious way, and most important, in a more consistent way than we know how to do, than we're doing today. And we we think our approach is is one way, and we're we're really excited about it. We feel pretty lonely. (laughs) Uh, There's, we don't, we're kind of out there as pioneers on this, but we also feel really confident because I think we've been set up in a way. I mean, if, if you imagine doing this from scratch, it, it's almost impossible, right? right. But having, having Bear and Ginkgo as our parents and being able to leverage the infrastructure that Ginkgo has, he, that Ginkgo's already built here in Boston on a daily basis, I mean, it's an enormous head start for us. And then you, you leverage the, the strain libraries and the, and the microbial support that we get from Bear and you put that together, that's not your normal startup. Hmm. 
Very true. And do you feel like that gives you an advantage? I mean, if another startup were to come out of a garage in the Silicon Valley trying to do the same thing, I would think they would have to spend a great deal of their time raising money and, and you know, kind of trying to commercialize maybe before they're ready. Do you feel like that's kind of a, you know, a, a big advantage for you in the situation you're in? It is, but it's, it's also uh, very temporal. It's only going to last for a little bit. And I think as, as soon as we're able to go out there, hopefully in the next, you know, six to 12, six to 18 months, as soon as we go out there and start showing picture people pictures of the difference, if we start showing, if we're able to show field data that shows, you know, a 5X, a significant difference in performance when you engineer a micro versus a wild type, it, it won't take long for other folks to jump in on that. that that's just, that's how it works. And right. so we, we, yes, I think we have an advantage today. And I actually think a lot of people are, are watching us to see how this turns out. I mean, no, very few people out there have $100 million in exclusive access to Ginkgo to run this, to, to try this moonshot. And we're the lucky ones that get to do it. If, if it works and, and we hit, it's going to be pretty exciting. And I think it's going to have a, a, a big impact on, on agriculture over the next 10 or 15 or 20 years. It's a, it's a whole new class of compounds, a whole new way to go after some of these problems. But the first step for us, you can't get ahead of yourself. The first step for us is we've got to show just how well this works and, and show that it has the consistency, show, demonstrate over and over it has the performance that makes these engineered microbes that much better than the natural or wild type ones. Right. I, I'd like to shift a little bit into the joint venture itself here. I'm, I'm just intrigued by that structure, meaning, you know, obviously both entities uh, come at this Bayer as well as Ginkgo Bioworks and say, okay, we're going to, we're going to both lend you a hand and you're going to be an independent entity, but we want to make you successful. It, how does that work from a practical standpoint of how do you make sure, you know, are there clear lines of like, Hey, I can ask our parent company for this, but I can't ask them for that. And, and how do you kind of make sure that you operate independently, but you fully exploit the resources at your disposal? What you just outlined is, is exactly the challenge. I think that in the case of in the case of Ginkgo, it's a, it's an easier problem to solve in that they're a smaller company. They're they're closer to us in size. They're 180 people and such, and so and they don't have quite the sensitivities that that buyer might to in terms of how independent are we. So with with Ginkgo, it's been relatively straightforward. We actually are housed here in Boston in, in their labs in the Design and Innovation Center. We literally work in the labs next to where the foundry is, and, and it's. For us, it's an amazing model because, you know, we, we may end up having, you know, 30, 35 employees total, but on any given day, we might have another, you know, 40 or 50 running samples for us mm -hmm. and we just pay on a strain test basis. So it's a, for us, it's a, it's a, it's a total win-win getting access to the technology, being able to be next door and form relationships with these folks, but at the same time, if you think about the Ginkgo model, they're doing this in five, six, seven, eight other markets, other businesses. So it allows them to scale and utilize these big assets that they have. We're, we're their focus in agriculture, but they have other companies and other ventures and other relationships where they move into pharma or specialty chemical or food ingredients or whatever. So from that, I think if you look at it through the eyes of 
of Ginkgo. It, 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 it supports their business model, and it also gives them a, an opportunity to get into and leverage their technology in agriculture without being an agriculture company. And hmm. the, the other side of that is they get to do it with Bayer, who is an agricultural company and also has resources to, from a financial standpoint, as well as from a, uh, a business standpoint and an IP standpoint. So, so part of what they put in is access to the, the strain library as an example. But I will say to your point, it's a really good one. In the case of Bayer, we have to be very careful how we access and, and we have very formal rules about how we access people and information and we have to make sure at, at, at all times that we're operating you know in a completely autonomous independent uh, fashion which, which is which is actually exactly what we want because if you if you took joint bio and, and put it back into bear it wouldn't be nearly as successful because you need that freedom that 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 flexibility and that creativity that comes with being a small group that's focused on a moonshot. If you go put that back into a big machine with all the process and and such, it's not going to do as well. So it's a, it's it, I think on on a number of levels, it, it's a win-win for everybody. Bear gets access to Ginkgo's technology, which they don't have. Ginkgo gets access to Bear's knowledge and and infrastructure on the on the ag side and join who's in the middle of that we come out the best of anybody because we get to we get to work on a, a really challenging really fun uh project well resourced reasonable time period and two you know two perfect parents to help us grow and help us support the work we're doing Fantastic. And, and for you as the leader at, at Join Bio, and, and you have worked, you know, in leadership capacities, both both with <laughs> Bayer, but also with AgriQuest and before, is it more yep. difficult to keep a team motivated when you're kind of on this moonshot expedition where it might be years before, you know, you actually kind of see uh, broad, uh, widespread commercialization? Is it harder in any way or, or is a team naturally just motivated by the idea of a eventual moonshot? So far, we're a year and a half into it, so that's what I can talk. So far, it's it's actually been easier, and I think part of that is is we've got a, a young, really skilled group that we've put together here in Boston around the metabolic engineering and around the, the biology and the engineering part. We've also got a six or seven folks out in California, in, in Woodland now, that are doing a lot of the plant science work. I, I, think, what, I think what motivates the team and, and all of us is working on something that nobody's ever done and recognizing that if, if we can make this work and if the difference, the performance difference, the consistency difference is big enough, you, you, could, change, you could change the way people look at this, the, the way they look at agriculture. And I think just, I mean, it isn't often in your career you get a chance to have to do something that hasn't been done before. And I think that's what that's what gets people coming in with a the excitement on their face, and then and leave at night trying to figure out how they can do better the next day. It's a it's it's a it's a great environment, and and, and at the same time, I think we're all realistic that that we aren't going to have a product in a year, but we very well might have proof of concept. We're definitely going to know a lot more about how long it's going to take, how close are we, how how just how big a difference will this optimization of these microbes make when you actually put a product into the greenhouse or out in the field? And that's, that's exciting. 
Absolutely. And and how how easy, and I shouldn't say easy because that's a misnomer just in itself, but once you have developed a, a, a solution like that, let's say it's for, you've got it working in corn and wheat where corn and wheat can, can fix a, a significant percentage of, of their own nitrogen needs. Does it become easier to move into other crops? Like, you know, let's say this cannabis industry that is so hot right now. I mean, do they need nitrogen as well? And, and how easy would it be to move into something like that? That's not the same, but you've already got the technology. I, I think the, 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 you know, you, you probably say the answer, most people would say the answer is yes. It's, it, it you know, it, it clearly gives you a, a roadmap or at least it gets you closer. What we don't know yet. And, and just trying to be realistic is, is, when you find something, a microbe that, that associates or works well on corn, how well will it work on a tomato plant or a pepper plant or a cannabis plant? I, I don't think we really know and, and understand, particularly in terms of degrees of performance. You don't really know until you actually go do that. And, and I think we're we're I, I think it is a as an industry and as a science community, I don't think people appreciate how early we are in the understanding of the microbiome and, and aware. I mean, it's only really been in the last five, 10 years that I think people have woken up to whether it's in human gut health or animal gut health or plants or whatever. People are just now waking up to how central microbes are to a lot of phenotypic and, gen- and genomic activity, you know, results and, and events that are going on. So there's just so much to learn and there's so much we don't know. Um, so it, it gets to your question. I, I don't know. Uh, we're not sure how it's going to translate, but but certainly having shown that it works and having understood the type of microbes to deliver and the type of edits you need to make so that the nitrogen fixation and transfer happens as efficiently as possible, those are clearly learnings that we're going to be able to apply across, presumably across any crop. Excellent. Well, Mike Milley, CEO of Join Bio, thanks so much for being on the Future of Agriculture podcast. Thanks, Tim. It really enjoyed it and best of luck with your podcast going forward. It's really terrific and uh, keep up the good work. Fascinating stuff there. Thank you again to Mike Milley for being on the show. Check them out at joinbio.com. That's J-O-Y-N. BIO.com. Learn more about what they're doing. Really, really interesting. And and if this moonshot were to be successful, it could have huge lasting impacts on the future of agriculture. Mike also mentioned that it'd be a good idea to check out Ginkgo Bioworks, which is G-I-N-K-G-O Bioworks, B-I-O-W-O-R-K-S, GinkgoBioworks.com to see some of the stuff happening over there as well, which is, of course, one of the two partners in the joint venture, them and Bayer Crop Sciences as well. So really interesting stuff. Thank you, Mike, for being on the show. It's now time for our five-minute farmer segment. This is a new segment we've started doing where we feature uh, a producer, so farmer or rancher that is selling direct to consumer. It's our chance to give an offering to you if you uh, want to support this show or people who are doing great work for the future of agriculture. Here's your chance. You can hop online and buy from a farmer that is is doing interesting things in the direct-to-consumer space. And we had our very first episode was a popcorn episode, and we've got another one here today in Amy Solzma. Amy does several direct-to-consumer businesses. She sells fireworks in the summertime. She grew up with her sister selling 
gourds and pumpkins in a roadside stand. And that stuck with her. Her first year with her sister, I think they earned $24. She said they were in the newspaper and she still has the newspaper picture clipping today. That carried through to when she was grown and had kids of her own and kept the thought of doing something direct to consumer. When I had my own kids, I thought, you know, this would be kind of a fun thing to do with my own children. So I asked my father-in-law for a little plot in the corner of a field. It was about 40 feet square. And then we had some skip rows out in the field that we missed when we were planting. So threw some seeds in the ground and that was the first year. And it was a golf cart trailer load is what we had the first year. And so 20 years later, I have six acres of pumpkins, gourds and squash and popcorn that we grow. And yeah, it's just evolved over the years and we like to add something new all the time. And the first year we simply had just the pumpkins, gourds and squash. And a few years later, we added a corn maze and a country store. And then in 2008, we added our ruby red popcorn. So last year was our 10th year growing the popcorn. We always are looking for something different to do. We don't want to do the same thing everybody has. You know, I, I plant 75 kinds of pumpkins, gourds, and squash. And I always say, you can buy an orange pumpkin anywhere. We grow the stuff that you don't see all the time. And the same with the popcorn. You can buy white popcorn and yellow popcorn in the grocery store anytime. But ours is a little different. And that difference is noticed instantly. Amy sent me some of her popcorn, and as soon as you open the box, you see the dark ruby red color of the kernels. Spoiler alert, when you pop it, it does pop white. Uh, If you want to buy some of her gourds or pumpkins or fireworks, you do have to go to Sanborn, Iowa, which is in northwest Iowa. But you can buy this popcorn online at solzma.com. I asked her, is it really mainly the, the ruby red color that keeps the customers coming back? Well, that, but it, it does really taste great. And they they just describe it. It's like a nutty flavor and it's crispy and crunchy. And they, they say it just doesn't taste like the stores. It's so much better. So that's why I have repeat customers because it tastes so good. For the Solzmas, this is a side business. They do own and operate a full-scale commercial, what I'll call commodity farming operation as well. But with Amy's experiences growing up, she worked with her kids to create this direct-to-consumer business that actually has allowed them to help put themselves through college. But it's not just about the dollars and cents for Amy. This is really a labor of love. I have people that stop once a year on their way to the fair or to the lake, and they stop and say hi. And I, I just love visiting with them and catching up and just seeing how they're doing. And I make people happy when they stop. I sell them fun things in the fall, sell them fun fireworks in the summer. And I just like bringing a smile to people's faces. And yeah, it's just so fun for me. I just love to to help the customer and have a happy customer. And this is what a lot of consumers, including myself, 
love about the idea of direct-to-consumer. It's that food is more than just about a transaction. It's about community. It's about connectivity. It's about really serving people's needs. And I think Amy captures that perfectly and why she's so passionate about this business. Now, you may be thinking, well, Northwest Iowa, of course, you know, that's that's a very rural area. So obviously everyone's agrarian and it makes sense that this type of interaction would happen. Well, you might be surprised to hear from Amy that it's not quite so agriculturally literate everywhere. I live in a very rural county, but there's a lot of kids from town that have no idea there's a difference between popcorn, sweet corn, and field corn. And so when I do have those school kids come out, I make a point of saying, all this corn you see around us is what's fed to the chickens and pigs and cattle. And this popcorn is what we eat. And sweet corn is something entirely different too. So just to make sure that they understand that because so many kids have no idea and and adults too, for that matter. And one big difference between the popcorn and the field corn is the yields. The yields on the popcorn are much, much lower than that of the field corn, but they're still able to use their John Deere combine when harvesting their popcorn. I really, really enjoyed talking to Amy, and you can just feel her passion for farming and for producing a product that makes people happy. So please hop online, go to solsma.com, S-O-L-S-M-A, solsma.com, that's her last name, and you'll see all about their fireworks and their pumpkin patch, but most importantly, you'll be able to buy some popcorn online. She's already sold to over 28 states, and we'd love to make that 50, so go to solsma.com and get some ruby red popcorn today. I can tell you from firsthand experience, it is delicious, and if by chance you're ever in Northwest Iowa, just stop on by. I always tell people if we're home, we're open because we're really only open a few months out of the year on a daily basis. So if they need a, another bag of popcorn, they can just stop out and we'll help them out. That website one more time is solsma.com, S-O-L-S-M-A.com. If you aren't sold yet, I'll also tell you that the the kernels, because they're smaller, they get stuck in your teeth less or probably not at all. Anyway, I can tell you from firsthand experience, the popcorn is delicious. You don't want to miss out. Hey, thanks to those of you who've given me some feedback on the 5-Minute Farmer segment. It sounds like it's going to be sticking around based on the positive remarks we've had. In fact, I think the only negative remark so far has been that they are too short, that they want more of them, and the fact that I call it 5-Minute Farmer and don't keep it to 5 minutes. So I take full ownership for that. Also appreciate those of you who've left an iTunes rating and review. It really does help get the word out about this show. Specifically, had one recently from Farming Sodak, who says, great interviews discussing important ag topics, great content to make people aware of what is out there and that they what they can use to improve their operations. Thanks, Farming Sodak, and those of you who have left ratings and review. If you haven't yet, it only takes maybe 30 seconds. Hop on, give us a rating, give us a review. I'd love to read it on a future episode of this show. As always, I genuinely appreciate your time and attention. The fact that this audience is so entrepreneurial and intellectually curious about the future of agriculture keeps me going every week, and I really do appreciate it. We'll be back next week with another exciting ag innovator. Hey, thanks again for listening to the Future of Agriculture podcast. If you like what you heard here today, I'd love to connect with you further. Go over to futureofag.com. That's futureofag.com. And let me know a good email address for you so we can keep in touch. Also, you'll be able to check out a ton of bonus content on the blog while you're there. Otherwise, make sure you're subscribed to the show so you can catch another fascinating ag innovator here next week. Next week.